0: Hello, Podcast Land. Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, We are your friendly neighborhood Washington, D.C. tour guides talking to you about all things fabulous, interesting, scandalous, dark, wonderful, and exciting uh, about American history, about D.C. history, about just things that we want to chat about generally. Um, We are here for you guys. Uh, And it is June, and we are, um, it's the heat of the summer gang, so we thought we'd do an episode that has a little bit of a water theme to cool us all down. Um, Anyway, as ever, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. And we, before we jump into our topic, we want to just mention our summer schedule. We're doing two episodes uh, rather than our normal once a week. Uh, We also are having special episodes for our patrons. So if you're not a patron, uh, this would be a great time to become one. Uh, We welcome all our patrons as little as $3 a month. You get all sorts of bonus goodies uh, and uh, exciting things. And we love our patrons the most. You guys have been the wind beneath our wings for this whole pandemic year. Uh, We are sort of reducing a little bit of our our pod schedule because we are giving tours. Tourism is starting back up in the D.C. area, and we are ever so grateful. Uh, So if you are in a a local to the D.C. area or you happen to be visiting this summer, come on and check us out in person. Uh, We are actually even more fabulous in person, if you can believe it. Becca, what are we talking about today? We are um, talking about something that I really
1: feel like should be a better known event. I think in the DC area in particular, in the last few years, there's been more conversations about this occurrence, uh, a bit of an effort to really commemorate and uh, remember this event, but it's something I didn't know about till I moved to DC. It was something I didn't know about till I started becoming a tour guide. And it's something that really just in the last year or two, I've really dug in to try to understand the story more of. Uh, So we're gonna talk about something called the Pearl Incident. So um, a little bit of background here. Uh, The Pearl, um, when we say the Pearl incident, the Pearl was a ship. Uh, It was a 54-ton schooner, and it was involved in the largest nonviolent attempted escape of enslaved people in our country's history. So first and foremost, we're talking about the largest nonviolent attempted escape of enslaved people, and I had never heard of it. Um, This includes high school, college-level um, history courses on uh, America in this time period, the 1848. Um, and yet I had never heard of this until I lived in DC, started working as a tour guide, and really started delving into the Black history of the city. And it's something I think we should absolutely be learning about when we're learning about the buildup to the Civil War.
0: I completely agree. I had not heard of this either until I started giving tours. and. I, you know, have read a good bit about American history. I've read a good bit about the Civil War. And as we're going to talk about, there are so many people that intersect with this incident, famous names, some we've mentioned on this podcast, some we should do podcasts about, that are really, like, integral to this, uh, the Pearl incident. And it's just, how has this not been taught more? Like, how is this not a bigger deal? Um, So, yeah, I was really... I heard about this and then was really very thought, uh, adamant that we should do this as a, a pod topic because it's just, it's DC history, which we love, and but it's also got such a great national resonance and it's the largest nonviolent attempted escape of enslaved people in our country's history. And I feel like we hear about violent slave revolts, like we there's, you know, they're sort of in the popular ether, but there's, we don't ever hear really about... Nonviolent escape attempts, and I feel like that's kind of important to talk about.
1: And we often, I think, when we talk about when it comes up in, in sort of the curriculum of school, when we talk about escaping enslavement, we tend to talk about individual attempts, individual escapes. Uh, we learn about people like Harriet Tubman, we learn about the Underground Railroad, um, but we don't really, I think, have a good understanding of the fact that there were larger scale attempts that involved many people, um, that, that this was not just one or two people trying to flee to freedom at a time. There were dozens and dozens of people trying to escape the system. So to set the scene, um, the Pearl incident itself will take place in April um, of 1848. So in 1848, the District of Columbia, the Federal District, is kind of at the perfect intersection of... um, this fight between continuing this institution of slavery in this country and the fight for abolition. The population of D.C. at this time was about 43,000 people. So we are still um, a small city. um, But of course, that's fairly compacted. We're densely populated in sort of the downtown core and the waterfront areas of the district. Of those 43,000, though, 10,000 or so are free blacks. So we have a very large population of free blacks in the District of Columbia. And then we have about 4,000 enslaved people. So you've got a place where you have have free blacks, you have enslaved people, you have abolitionists, you have uh, slave owners, you have uh, Southern congressmen that are fighting very hard to enshrine slavery permanently is the law of the land. You have um, abolitionist congressmen that are fighting very hard to change these laws. Um, you have a federal government that is still quite young, still essentially a patchwork of kind of institutions that are just trying to hold everything together. And very much what the federal government in this era, the 1840s in particular is trying to do is just quell the violence. Um, there are not a lot of people and um, this kind of re- uh, run of presidents that are trying to solve this problem They're really just trying to keep it as calm as possible um, as things are getting increasingly bloody, not just in D.C., but around the country uh, around this issue. So we're very much people think about the Civil War and Lincoln's election as kind of like the turning point. But we often forget that we had been building up to that point
0: over decades. And if you want some, a little bit of background about this sort of buildup, check out our Henry Clay episode. We talk a lot about him and the Compromise of 1850, which we're gonna talk about has not happened yet. But Henry Clay basically spends his entire career in Congress uh, trying to kick the can of slavery down the road so that it's someone else's problem. And it is like by 1860, the Civil War has been coming and people know it's been coming for a long time. There has been growing unrest. But even in the nation's capital, and D.C. is, like Becca mentioned, such a great melting pot for all of these different competing interests. There is a slave market down the street from the capital of the United States. There are enslavers in Congress, there are also like really rabid abolitionists. So you have people on completely opposite sides of this debate. You have freed African-Americans living here uh, and enslaved. You have people who are bringing their enslaved African-Americans to the city. Like there's so many things going on in such a snug little ambit uh, of DC at that time that it's just such a, um, it really isn't particularly a surprise that something like this is gonna happen in in the nation's capital i feel like
1: absolutely and it is
0: important to note
1: that this is slavery is a booming business in the District of Columbia and the surrounding area. Um, At the time, Alexandria has one of the largest slave markets in the country, um, just down the river. Um, There are enslavers and slave markets throughout the district, Maryland, the surrounding area. Um, The portion of Virginia that was once part of the District of Columbia had just retroceded back two years prior in 1846 over the issue of slavery. So this is very much present in the day-to-day lives of district um, residents. Uh, and the people that are part of this system. So um, I think DC is like a perfect little microcosm of the country at this point. Understandably, there is a huge abolitionist movement. There are abolitionists in northern states that are funding abolitionist efforts in the District of Columbia, with that population, sizable population of free blacks making up, you know, a pretty sizable uh, portion, about 20% of the city's population, they're working very hard to try to organize escapes. Many of these escapes are on that individual scale we talked about, people helping one or two people slip to the north or helping a family or two. Um, But what happens is we get three men who come together, and what starts as a small plan really grows. Um, so the Pearl incident, the Pearl escape, is really orchestrated by three individuals, um, Daniel Bell, Samuel Edmondson, and Paul Jennings. So Samuel Edmondson, um, was uh, the son of a man named Paul Edmondson who'd been born free, um, but married a woman named Amelia who was enslaved. So by the slave laws of the day, all 14 of the Edmondson children were born into slavery. And this was a very common occurrence in the District of Columbia because you had so much intermarriage between the freed population and the enslaved population that it was not uncommon for freed people to have their children enslaved. Um, And you can imagine how heartbreaking that was, how difficult it was and the legal, gymnastics that one had to go through, even if you had money to purchase freedom, if you, even if you were able to make negotiations, these things got tied up in court very frequently. All it took was one judge to rule against you, even if you had done everything you were supposed to do. Um, and this is um, something the Edmondson family faces extensively. Um, Samuel Edmondson um, is going to ultimately uh, become free. Uh, Several of his other siblings have had their freedom purchased by spouses or supporters, but two of his sisters are still enslaved. So he is very eager to get them out of Virginia uh, and to get them to a northern state. Uh, His two sisters are Mary and Emily. Mary is 15 and Emily is 13. And we will definitely talk a little bit more about the Edmondson sisters a little later. Next is Daniel Bell, who has a Entirely fascinating story. I honestly want to do an entire podcast on Bell and his wife and their children, but sort of long story short, um, it's going to truly take his family decades, decades of fighting, of doing things both legal and illegal um, to to obtain their freedom. Uh, Daniel Bell will ultimately um, be free uh, by 1847, but he has 12 of his family members, including some of his children, still enslaved. He has faced uh, kind of ridiculous legal complications thanks to a couple really unsavory judges and, and judicial decisions. And so he is really motivated to organize an escape that will help his remaining enslaved family members reach freedom. He's tried to do this the legal way. He keeps running into barriers and he's just kind of done with it. He's ready to just uh, organize this escape. And then there is Paul Jennings. Paul Jennings is another really, really interesting figure. Uh, He was once enslaved by the Madisons at the White House, um, which was not uncommon. uh, If you were in the District of Columbia in this era, um, it was pretty common to find yourself um, at the White House, at Congress, uh, working for members of the federal government. Um, Eventually, Paul Jennings was purchased by Senator Daniel Webster from Massachusetts, who essentially frees Jennings on the condition that he stay on board with Webster and work off the debt that was incurred by purchasing his freedom. So again, not an uncommon situation that occurred in the district. Jennings and Webster actually build a really... um, a really nice relationship uh, because Webster is going to help connect Jennings to abolitionist uh, interests in Massachusetts, going to connect him to organizations. Jennings becomes very active in the abolitionist movement in the District of Columbia, and he is going to regularly become uh, involved in organized escapes out of Washington. And I think it's really a testament to Jennings that, you know, once he's sort of freed, he could leave, he could go elsewhere, but he's really dedicated to helping others who were in his situation get out, and he's gonna maintain a very close uh, relationship to other folks who have been enslaved by the Madisons, by the Polks, by various other presidents in this era uh, in particular. So you have three people for whom, three men for whom this is very, very personal. We're talking about their loved ones, their families, um, and they, they wanna get them out. So that's sort of how it begins. Um, they are not gonna be able to do this alone. Uh, they are going to be primarily, uh, I, I should say funded, although likely he got the money from someone else uh, by a guy named William Chaplin. Chaplin is a New York abolitionist. He's a well-known agent on the Underground Railroad. Um, he is going to sort of be the Northern um, kind of ally to this. He's likely going to go to another wealthy abolitionist um, named Garrett to help fund this uh, particular expedition. But Chaplin is gonna the one uh, kind of raising funds, getting things together and, and, and helping set up this plan. And he hires a very important person named Daniel Drayton from Pennsylvania to um, procure the boat for this escape. Daniel Drayton is um, familiar with this. He has done this kind of thing before. He's a white man and he has done similar runs from Washington, D.C. up along kind of the eastern seaboard, helping families escape. And in fact, he had done the exact same route that this Pearl, intends, this Pearl ship intends to go uh, just the previous year with an enslaved woman and her children. Uh, Drayton is going to put together the crew, which will include a man named Edward Sayers, who's going to help him captain the boat and steer the boat, and then a couple other crew members as well. So, You have sort of this um, patchwork of people making this happen. You have these freed Black men that are really uh, working to find and connect the people who are going to get on this boat. You have white abolitionists that are funding it. And then you have these white crew members that are going to actually get this boat from D.C., ideally up to New Jersey. This is their plan, is to go from the wharf area of D.C., the Potomac up the Potomac River through the Chesapeake Bay to the Atlantic, and then up to New Jersey. This is like a 225-mile journey. And this is their plan.
0: This is their big plan. It's really it's audacious, the plan is, I think. And it is worth mentioning, one of the things that people were sort of very, the one of the things that's spurring a lot of um, movement in this direction is D.C. is too far. Like when we think of slavery, I think a lot of us picture big plantations. That's not in this area of the world as much. DC, we can't grow cotton in D.C. We're way too far north. And so tobacco has been the main Crop, but we're phasing out tobacco uh, in this area, and particularly in a city, what there there's a surplus of enslaved labor, and their owners are sort of hiring them out. Basically, they are hired servants, and their wages go to the slave owner, and. The hiring out can be a day, it can be a week, it can be like indefinitely. And so what they're worried about is that their their loved ones will get hired out somewhere and disappear beyond their uh, ability to help them. And so that's part of what's sort of spurring uh, this on. And what's another, the as this plan sort of coalesces, it's at first just a few people, and then it kind of expands as sort of word spreads, and again, DC is a city. I mean it's not the city that it is today certainly, but it it also isn't these isolated plantations in the deep south where you don't uh, encounter very many other people. You're encountering in DC you're if you're an enslaved person you're encountering free African Americans, you're encountering abolitionists so you're getting more uh, ability to in- interact with other people and so the word is spreading.
1: This is not going to stay a secret mission for very long within the community
0: particularly.
1: Um, So yeah, it starts out, it's really uh, initiated to be a way to get the Edmondson family, the Bell family um, out. Jennings uh, has some connections to uh, enslaved people, uh, kind of from the Madison um, kind of constellation of people. Um, But this kind of gets keeps growing and growing and growing. And it starts to include a number of people, ultimately 77 total people involved. One of them, though, that I want to mention is a woman named Ellen Stewart, a woman, I should say a girl named Ellen Stewart. Ellen Stewart is 15 years old in 1848. She has been uh, enslaved by the Madisons, which by 1848, we're talking about Dolly Madison, James Madison is Deceased at this point, Uh, this is how she knows Paul Jennings uh, is through her connection to the Madisons. Um, Dolly Madison was in a ton of debt at this point in her life due to her no good Nick son, um, who we we have spoken about uh, in our presidential children episode. Um, He leaves her with a lot of debt. Dolly is going to handle this debt in the only way she often knows how, which is to unload her assets, which include people. Um, So one of her frequent ways to settle debts or to satisfy debtors was to sell off enslaved people. And um, she does this um, sort of indiscriminately. She splits up families, she often will just, you know, do what she thinks is best for her and her financial situation, but often it's devastating for the people it involves. And she will sell off uh, Ellen's brothers, uh, both of them, although one of them dies before he has a chance to actually be transferred. Um, And Ellen is rightfully afraid as a teenager that this is going to happen to her, that she is going to get sold to a slave trader and she could end up down South. She could end up disconnected from that community in DC that she's, she's grown a part of. So in December of 1847, Dolly Madison invites Ellen, tells Ellen to bring some water to a guest that is sitting in the parlor of Dolly's D.C. home. If you've been to Lafayette Square Park, there's a little yellow house uh, right along H Street that is that was Dolly Madison's residence. It was the second most visited residence in, after the White House in D.C., so it was very much a center of D.C. society. Uh, the man who's sitting in the parlor is a slave trader. Dolly's intention is to hand this... Uh, Hand Ellen over to the slave trader but he wants to evaluate Ellen first. So this is all a little covert meeting. Uh, Dolly is trying to trick Ellen into meeting the slave trader, so he can evaluate her and then they are going to, Dolly's going to finalize the sale. Um, Of course, Dolly Madison is afraid that if Ellen knows that she's being evaluated by a slave trader she's going to run away, which is a very good assumption, Mm -hmm. um, because wouldn't you also do that I would. After this little covert parlor meeting, Dolly Madison sends Ellen out to the water pump that was in Lafayette Square Park. This is where you could pump your fresh well water. And this is all a ploy. Um, Dolly has finalized the sale. The plan is to send Ellen Ellen out into the park so the slave trader can essentially capture her and then take her and sell her. Luckily, that doesn't happen because Ellen Stewart was a very smart 15-year-old. She knows something is up right away. And when she goes out to that water pump, she runs as fast as she can. She flees the neighborhood and she goes into hiding. So Ellen Stewart has been in hiding uh, for four and a half months by the time the Pearl incident occurs. And this is um, true of several of the people that are involved in this escape. These are people that have already uh, escaped their particular situation, but they need to get out of Washington, DC. They need to get to the North. So uh, because of Ellen's connection to Paul Jennings, Jennings likely probably knew the people that were helping Ellen hide. uh, And so he connects her to this escape. All things said and done, 77 enslaved people are gonna be part of this um, attempted escape. 38 men, 26 women, and 13 children.
0: So the Pearl is docked at a wharf at the base of 7th Street Southwest which is today the wharf area, which is the sort of new fancy schmancy area of Washington, D.C. It is um, very There's all kinds of recreation and food and drink and stuff there. Yeah, literally, if
1: you go out on what's known as the recreation pier, that's where the ship was was
0: docked. Right. Um, so it is now a place where you can like sit on a swing. And it's very nice. It was not didn't look like that in 1848. Uh, it was um, kind of secluded. There were a lot of there uh, weren't so many buildings in that area. It was very much like what you're picturing sort of a wharf area, some factories, but a lot of ships kind of loading and unloading. And so it was easy to was kind of secluded along the river and easy to slip in and out unnoticed. So the 77, 77 people are going to sneak on board and they're going to hide below deck. They're actually going to hide um, among boxes. So it's basically the, the cover is that it's a cargo ship. And so these 77 enslaved uh, runaways are going to hide. Uh, it is, they're going to make their way down the Potomac River. Sort of they want to get to the Chesapeake Bay. And it's initially things are going well at first.
1: I mean, the fact that 77 people were able to sort of get to the ship, get on board, and they were able to leave the dock without arousing any suspicion is incredible to me. You know, that's pretty amazing.
0: It really is. But then the weather decides against them. Uh, They're delayed by a shift in the tide overnight, and they get some rough weather, and so they're forced to put an anchor down, and this is outside of D.C., but... Time is wasting, and so they can't, they're not getting the sort of wind that they need to get where they want to go, and by the next morning, people are going to start to notice that these slaves have escaped, enslaved people have escaped, and they're going to raise the alarm, and unfavorably just, because the winds are not in their favor, they're basically a sitting duck. Um, They are going to sit at the mouth of the Potomac River, unable to move. And so they're eventually going to be captured in, at a place called Point Lookout, Maryland, which is the very sort of southern-ish tip of the Chesa- Maryland, right where you're at the Chesapeake Bay.
1: I should say, too, there's a decision that's made on board, you know, that they, they're facing poor Weather conditions, you know, they're kind of at the mouth of the Potomac into the Chesapeake. And as they're sort of sitting, sitting, waiting, waiting, a storm comes through the bay. So now Daniel Drayton and Edward Sayers have to decide okay, are we going to stay here? Are we going to try to go through the storm? The storm is giving us wind and movement, but it's also dangerous to take a schooner, even a big one, into the storm. Or do we kind of turn and avoid heading towards the Atlantic? And They argue about it. Daniel Drayton writes um, a, a memoir later after this incident, which is how we sort of know a little bit more of the play-by-play of what happens. Drayton wants to keep going, Sayers does not. Um, They're worried about the ship. They're worried about getting shipwrecked. And so they decide to dock near Point Lookout. And that is going to, I think, really be the decision that's going to lead to their capture Um, because it is a very Southern point. They think they're pretty isolated. They're trying to sort of hide the boat among reeds and kind of like marshy area. but it puts them right on the land, right or along the coast. And so um, they're going to be spotted.
0: And so the historical accounts are, differ and sort of conflict about what exactly the slave owners knew and when they knew it. But they are going to send out essentially a posse uh, to an armed posse, I should mention, uh, that's going to go downriver from D.C. on a steamboat. So all of a sudden you have a steamboat trying to catch a schooner which is that's not moving that's not moving and they actually had one of the routes that the posse thought they might take would be up through baltimore and so the posse almost heads up in that direction and if they had the pearl might have gotten away and reached its destination but they don't the posse is going to head down uh towards um point lookout and they're going to basically i mean the the pearl just can't escape there's the weather has uh is not in their favor and there's really nothing they can do and they're essentially a sitting duck so they're going to 30 white slave owners and volunteers are going to board uh, board this steamship chase the pearl until they overtake them uh, and It is, there's a lot, it should be mentioned, that's unknown about how exactly the enslaved owners knew exactly where they were going to be. So there's, um, there are sources that claim, you know, different motivations to different people who are going to telltales out of school, so to speak, that's going to kind of snitch on uh, the slave, uh, the enslaved people who are trying to escape on the Pearl. And so it's not really known. It's never really clear. And we never probably will never really know exactly how the um, owners knew what was happening, but they're eventually going to overtake uh, within a day, they're going to overtake uh, the Pearl.
1: There's one man that several historians uh, have sort of pointed to based on the records of some of the descendants of the Pearl inhabitants, a man named Judson Diggs, um, who himself was enslaved, but um, actually drove a participant down to the dock and saw the ship. Uh, Diggs has sort of become the Judas of this story, Mm -hmm. uh, and one or two historians sort of put him in, and that's been repeated a lot on the internet. I do want to note that um, we actually have different historical accounts that point to different people people um, who may have known about this, uh, that one person may have been coerced to give this up, um, basically under threat of death. So um, without knowing, I feel like without having the right historical record, we can't just point to Diggs, but that he has sort of been the one that's come up in several writings as likely to have um, or how could possibly have been the one who betrayed potentially because of interest he had in the Edmondson sisters is, what? is the story the Edmondson descendants tell.
0: Right. What I read about Judson Diggs is that first of all, he's not identified as this sort of potential betrayer until 1916. Like, yeah. So long after the event. Significantly has Significantly after. And he's identified by a man named John Painter, who was uh, a descendant of the Edmondson sisters. So he's got his own bias I think Um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of really hard evidence before that that is going to point the finger at Judson Diggs.
1: I think it's more likely that you know as we were saying before that this plan wasn't staying secret people were talking about it and unfortunately all it takes sometimes or it can take is the threat um, to somebody Mm -hmm. to, to to for someone to share what they know or to even point people in the right direction um it's also important to note that when these slave owners these enslavers make their way and capture the ship there's about 30 white men Very, very angry overtaking this boat. (laughs) They are particularly angry at Daniel Drayton and Edward Sayers. They're really angry at these two white men who are captaining this boat. And according to Drayton's later account, there are talks of lynching these two men on site. They're also, as the steamship is approaching, they're, from what we understand from historical record, there was some talk on the boat about whether they should try to fight back. There's 77 of them, although they're mostly unarmed. Uh, They have very little um, in way of of weapons, whereas these um, men chasing them are armed. But they very quickly decide, according to um, accounts of people who are there, that trying to fight back at this point will only cause more trouble. And that by basically allowing themselves to be taken, they will hopefully keep everybody safe and alive. So there is a moment though, where they have to decide, are we going to fight back? Are we going to submit? Um, And then there's a real moment where I think the lives of Drayton and Sayers really hang in the balance.
0: Yes, they're going to parade, the passengers and crew are gonna be shackled once they get back to land, back to DC, and paraded through town. And this is going to spark supporters of enslavement uh, to who are outraged by this. They're going to form an angry mob, and three days of riots begin. Uh, pro-slavery riots are going to... Uh, head throughout the district, one of their big targets is a man named Gamaliel Bailey, who is the owner and publisher of an anti-slavery newspaper. Uh, he's the police have to hold off uh, the slave owners who are from destroying his newspaper. Uh, that's how upset. Uh, everyone is. And so there is thousands of people, several thousand people are going to gather um, and yell and heckle the Pearl uh, participants as they were walked to a DC jail. Uh, the jail was known then, which I kind of love, as the Blue Jug. I don't, I want to know why it was called that, honestly. Uh, but it's on the site of was now the National Building Museum, which is on F Street, near, not too far from the Capitol. Uh, one slave trader named Joseph Gannon, whose business is located where the archives is today, so just a few blocks away, is actually going to lunge after Drayton with a knife, so attack him as he's being sh- paraded while shackled towards this jail. The hecklers are yelling at the Edmonds sisters, Mary and Emily, uh, asking if they're ashamed for causing all this trouble. uh, And the girls replied that they'd do the same thing again if they had the chance. So I kind of dig that. And these riots are going to be, the outrage focuses on Daniel Drayton and the white supporters of this escape. So you have white pro-slavery men who are angry at other white men who are in favor of abolition. So it's a lot, I think, a really dynamic that they're not particularly upset, I guess, at the enslaved people for trying to escape. They're upset. The pro-slavery men are upset at the abolitionists, the white abolitionists for trying to help the enslaved people escape psychologically
1: it's fascinating because there's almost like not a lack of surprise that someone enslaved would try to escape because they know that what they're doing isn't right it isn't moral it isn't natural so of course people are going to try to escape they're angry at their what they feel should be their fellow brothers in, Mm -hmm. in whiteness for helping this happen but of course like of course somebody enslaved is going to try to escape. It's an insane thing. Of course they're going to try to get out of it. So sort of psychologically, it's fascinating. Um, But these riots are no joke. um, And the targets are Drayton, but certainly anybody in the abolitionist movement, you mentioned the newspaper, but even pro-abolition congressmen find themselves under threat. Um, It's a dangerous time. President Polk um, sort of doesn't want to get involved with this at all. He's not interested in Speaking out in support of this escape. He's certainly not interested in delivering a decidedly pro abolition message. However, this violence, this destruction, it's not good. It's not good to have it in the nation's capital. And so he really does his best to keep the peace. He tries to, de- he deploys federal troops to try to calm things down. And he does his best to quell this so that it doesn't spread to other cities and other places. Um, although in some of his writing, about this incident, he really also talks about the fact that there were white men supporting this effort and that was the cause of the violence. Um, As punishment, most of the 77 enslaved fugitives on the ship are sold and transported to the deep south. So um, there's sort of this feeling of, you know, you can't be trusted. You can't be trusted around a, a thriving freed population, you can't be trusted here in a wharf city. So um, unfortunately, many of these um, individuals will find themselves going down to the Deep South. However, because of the notoriety around the Pearl, because of the incredible press that's going to surround this, um, there's going to be an effort by um, Northern abolitionists to help these Pearl Uh, attempted escapees get out of slavery period. Um, One slave trader named Hope Slatter actually purchases 50 of the 77 attempted escapees, which is insane. Um, That includes one of the people that they purchase is Ellen Stewart. Um, The hope is to sort of resell them um, further south. Uh, New Orleans is sort of the big target. But because these abolitionists in the north are going to really rise to action very quickly, um, they're going to focus their efforts on trying to buy the freedom of the Pearl fugitives. And Ellen is one of the lucky ones who has her freedom purchased uh, fairly shortly after. Um, She's going to be brought to Boston. She'll actually come back to Washington DC later in her life. but uh, she, she's sort of fortunate enough to uh, be able to be transferred up north. This is similar to what happens to the Edmondson sisters as well, um, although their journey is a lot longer. They're initially transferred to Alexandria, then to Baltimore, then to New Orleans, which um, as they're being shipped to New Orleans, their father and their brother are deeply concerned. Uh, these are teenage girls. They're 15 and 13, and the stories of what happened to what Happens and happened to young girls in New Orleans were rampant at the time, and there was a real fear for their safety. Um, And this sort of fear uh, leads Paul Edmondson, the father, to write letters to abolitionists um, pleading for his daughters. Uh, One of the people that he will plead to is a man named Henry Ward Beecher. He is um, a preacher and an abolitionist. And he's going to give a sermon that is like so incendiary, talking about these young Christian girls that are being sent into this den because of this terrible institution of slavery. And he will, you know, plead for money with such passion that the The way it is described is women are ripping off their jewelry to donate to the cause, that men are pulling out every dollar they have, and that people are openly weeping and rushing to give money. So Beecher was known for really like stirring up a crowd. Uh, And he raises the funds to um, free the Edmondson sisters and bring them up. up to Massachusetts. Uh, it is here that they will meet his sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who, um, if you haven't heard of her, is a very important author. Uh, she will write a book that will be very pivotal in the abolitionist movement, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which we could unpack many of the issues oh, yes. uh, surrounding Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it is without a doubt the most important book written in terms of, um, I think, spurring the abolitionist movement in this era, because it, it just, it, it illustrates and opens for many people what's actually happening. Uh, the thing about Uncle Tom's Cabin, though, is people question it. Yes. They question her depiction. And there are people, I should say, white people, um, Northern people, who go, it can't be that bad. This has to be an exaggeration. It, it's mm-hmm. too much. And so she is driven to publish a second book, a nonfiction book that shares interviews and accounts from enslaved people. And when she publishes that nonfiction book, it includes the story of the Edmondson sisters who she had grown to know and who were willing to talk about their experience uh, being enslaved and their experience at various slave markets and slave trades. Mm -hmm. Um, So she has to basically publish this nonfiction book to prove to people that Uncle Tom's Cabin wasn't, you know, fully fictional, that it wasn't just fantasy of how terrible this
0: institution was. There's so many like fascinating inflection points in that story. Like I love the girls were going to be, they actually went to um, new Orleans and then a yellow fever epidemic strikes. And so the slave, the uh, people who own them are nervous about them dying, which means they lose money. So they're going to send them back to Alexandria, which makes their family a little bit rest, a little easier, but they're basically loaned out and then locked up at night until their uh, father and brother can, Raise the money from uh, uh, Henry Beecher to purchase their freedom. Uh, The Beecher family, in and of themselves, are fascinating. They grew up in my area of the world. They're from Connecticut, and there's the Lyman Beecher was the father was a big um, prohibitionist before it was cool. Uh, He they have a he has several kids, including Henry Ward Beecher. His sons become preachers. His daughters become activists. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is super duper interesting and her house is a museum uh in the town north of Pine uh to this day and um Harriet Beecher Stowe writes all about this and I love that she, like people charge her with making all of this up like it is hard to overestimate like what a big bestseller Uncle Tom's Cabin was. Rumors were that Queen Victoria read it and wept while she was reading it. Like it gets everywhere and all sorts of people, it's a runaway bestseller and all sorts of people read it and then think, oh, this can't be real. And so Harriet Beecher Stowe gets all this mail saying, hey, you made this up. This is not true. This is and clearly so her- an
1: exaggeration. Clearly you're This couldn't be real. It's too outrageous. It's too terrible. Right. Who could believe
0: this to be true? These aren't Christian people who would do this, like, you know, all that stuff. And so Harriet Beecher Stowe turns around. and is like, okay, and you will all see, we'll, we'll all show you guys. And so she publishes interviews with a bunch of formerly enslaved people and was basically like, yeah, it really is this bad. And if anything, I toned it down for the book. And it's gonna be such an important moment in Harry, the Uncle Tom's cabin is such an important moment in the development of the civil war. It's one of these cultural touchstones that's gonna to just resonate throughout uh, what happens next. And it, the idea that the Pearl incident sort of leads the Edmondson sisters to play a role in that is just such, a, um, such an interesting aspect of the end of this story.
1: Let me just mention the book that, that that she writes is called A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it has a great subtitle, presenting the original facts and document, documents upon which the story is founded, together with corroborative statements verifying the truth of the work. So she basically kind of lays out that like, I am going to make it so you cannot question the veracity of this, you cannot question what is happening in the South. You cannot question what is happening under this institution, that it is as bad and worse than stated. And like, I'm going to lay it out the way a historian would, the way a journalist would. Um, you know, it's if you haven't um, read it, it's really fascinating. Um, there are really interesting excerpts that you can find online. We'll put some links in the show notes. Um, but this is published just five years after. The Pearl incident. Um, so we're we're right at that point as we're kind of building up to the Civil War. Um, The Edmondson sisters are going to, because of their relationship with um, the Beecher and the Beechers um, and uh, Henry Ward Beecher and Harry Beecher Stowe, uh, become very connected to the abolitionist movement. Uh, They're really gonna become the public face of um, the Pearl incident. They'll be invited to speak about it. They'll be invited to share about it. Uh, In 1850, they're invited to the Fugitive Slave Law Convention, which was a large anti-slavery meeting that was organized to demonstrate against the Fugitive Fugitive Slave Act, which ultimately would become American law. Uh, While they were there, they are photographed with Frederick Douglass, uh, whom um, Emily will build a very long relationship with. Sadly, Mary Edmondson dies fairly young, um, just about six years after the Pearl incident of tuberculosis. But Emily Edmondson is going to live a long life. She comes back to Washington, D.C. She will. become friends with a young woman named Martilla Minor, a white abolitionist. Um, they will found uh, the, what was called the Normal School for Colored Girls, um, which uh, makes Emily Edmondson a really strong advocate for education for women of color. Um, and she's going to maintain a, a long relationship with Frederick Douglass. She will be a frequent visitor to Cedar Hill if you've been to his historic house in Anacostia, um, which is also where Emily Edmondson will live with her uh, husband. But um, she ends up keeping a connection to Washington, D.C. for the rest of her life. Um, So, I mean, it's sort of incredible because of the way this sort of plays out that most of these Uh, fugitives, these attempted escapees survive this, and many Mm -hmm. of them go on to live long lives, many of them go on to continue to be be active in the abolitionist movement, many of them are fortunate enough to be able to escape um, or or leave enslavement. Um, So it kind of, in many ways, I think is a story of like overcoming, um, even the fact that this doesn't work out. There is, oh, sorry.
0: Oh, I was going to say, and the the two white men who are particularly vilified, Drayton and Sayers, they're going to have a trial very quickly within two months. And uh, they are actually defended by Horace Mann, the education reformer, which was fascinating to me. Uh, he also is gonna help slaves from the Amistad mutiny in 1839. So he is a celebrated uh, education reformer and uh, abolitionist activist. Um, they, Drayton and Sayers are gonna be charged with 77 counts each of aiding in a, a slave escape and illegally transporting in a slave. Uh, they are uh, convicted. There's appeals. The charges are reduced. uh, The jury eventually is going to convict them and they're sentenced to jail because neither of them can pay the fines associated with the convictions and court costs, which amounts to $10,000, which is pretty dear.
1: An insane amount of money in that time for these are, these are men. These
0: are laborers. They're
1: not wealthy men.
0: And so they're in prison for four years And there's a number of people, including um, Charles Sumner, my main man, uh, who is going to present legal briefs asking for a presidential pardon. And President Millard Fillmore is going to ignore this for a while. Because he's running for re-election. Because he's running for re-election. And then he doesn't get his party's nomination and he figures, okay, well, I'll just pardon them on my way out the door. And that's what he does. So uh, he pardons them and they actually are able to go free after that. So um, yeah, Miller Fillmore is uh, not exactly a profile here, but yeah. It's
1: sort of amazing. I mean, we, we, touch on Sumner quite a bit on this podcast, um, Although we've never done a full Sumner episode, I don't think, we should like a full deep dive. Um, but it is not surprising Sumner, a lifelong abolitionist, a, a passionate yes. advocate for the ending of this institution, that he would continue to, you know, these men are sentenced to jail essentially indefinitely because they cannot pay these fines. Most people have sort of forgotten about them. Yeah. Um, after the first initial year or two of everything sort of dies down. But the fact that Sumner's like these men were jailed unjustly. They deserve mm-hmm. to be free. I'm going to write this brief. I'm going to press. Um, I'm going to press Fillmore on it. Um, it does not surprise me uh, that Sumner does it. But yeah, Millard Fillmore just sort of uh, sits on it because he's worried that if he pardons him, it will hurt his chance at reelection. Um, the Whig party at the time is sort of walking this very fine line. Um, but then when he loses his nom- or doesn't receive the nomination, he's like, whatever else do I have to lose? Uh, Important to note, though, the Pearl incident does have a really important impact on the anti-slavery movement. It has an important impact on the abolitionist movement because it really shows, um, it illustrates in a very real way, the support for abolition in the district. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is going to be referenced, if you go through the congressional records, 1848, 1849, 1850, this gets referenced over and over and over again as a reason to end slavery in the district, to, to to limit slavery in the district. This continues to be cited in speeches and in resolutions. And it really garners a lot of press attention for the abolitionist movement. It's an energizing incident. It breathes new life into the abolitionist movement, new money. Um, and these are really important things. And so even though Congress itself doesn't take any sort of immediate action in 1848 or 1849, um, directly addressing the Pearl incident. We see it come up in those congressional debates a lot in those two years. And when we get to the Compromise of 1850, which Rebecca mentioned earlier, and if you haven't listened to our Henry Clay episode, it really dovetails with this perfectly. Um, This is a huge component of the Compromise of 1850 Uh, is abolishing the slave trade in the District of Columbia. And it is a direct result of this Pearl incident and the violence that ensued. And that's how this is going to be argued that we have to end the slave trade here. This this issue is becoming increasingly violent. Um, And if we can start that here, many abolitionists believe if we can end it in DC, then it's going to be a domino effect. And so the Pearl incident leads us really into that component of the Compromise of 1850.
0: Well, they don't fully abolish slavery in the district until Abraham Lincoln does it in 1862, but they try. So that's, I think, the point. Like the It's, it's part gonna, of this bill. Of it's part of this it's legislation. Part of all of this, the compromise of 1850, it's part of raising the awareness, which I think is really its main uh, effect, is that it's going to raise awareness about the really terrible conditions of slavery and that uh, it gives abolitionists a big boost uh, and pressing their case. So I feel like that's the ultimate... Um, uh, record of the Pearl incident and the Pearl incident has a sort of present day, um, echo, uh, in the very spot where it happened, where the schooner was docked. They, when they developed the wharf area a few years ago, they decided to dedicate one of the streets. In fact, the street, uh, the alleyway that is directly across from the pier, uh, is now called Pearl at Pearl Street. So it is, uh, in reference to, uh, the Pearl incident which I think is a really uh, lovely little um, Easter egg uh, when you head down in that area. There's also a um, mural to the Edmondson sisters, both at the wharf and there's a statue of them in Old Town Alexandria near where they were uh, held after the Pearl incident. So there is a statue of them there as well. Um, And um, the, the marker at the wharf is near Hank's Oyster Bar and Pearl Street.
1: Yeah, so um, if you've ever like been down at the wharf and it's not been super crowded and you look down along your feet, there's actually historic markers all along uh, the waterfront embedded into that sort of stone pedestrian walkway. They're really easy to miss because um, they blend in so beautifully that if you're walking, they're like the same color as the stone. So look for those. Um, But if you are at Hank's Oyster Bar at the wharf um, and you're sort of by the front door, there's the patio. uh, And right there along the where the patio is today, there is a marker uh, commemorating the Pearl incident. Um, I love um, along Main Avenue right now. There's an incredible set of murals highlighting a number of important black um, residents of D.C., um, citizens of D.C., um, done by uh, Jah, Nasir Jahabin, who's one of our favorite muralists, um, and he's got the Edmondson sisters there. Um, I also, if this is at all interesting to you, I encourage you to check out Asbury United Methodist Church. Asbury United Methodist Church was organized as sort of a Black congregation. Paul Edmondson was one of the founding members. Um, This was organized by freed Blacks to sort of establish this church, although they had to have sort of white leadership initially, which is sort of telling. Um, but the the congregation of Asbury is going to play a key role in sort of organizing this escape, and then when it doesn't work, trying to bring funds in. Uh, the Edmondson Uh, family will stay connected to Asbury for many, many years. Um, Asbury United Methodist Church has gone on to be one of the most important um, churches when it comes to uh, Black history in Washington, D.C. People like Mary Church Terrell have spoken and were involved in the congregation, Dorothy Height, some of the really key members of our community and uh they today uh do an incredible job sharing their history showcasing their history they've worked very hard to kind of encourage local press and media to write about this they've organized um a symposium around the pearl incident and uh they were in the news not all that long ago um just about now at this time six eight months ago um they actually had um, a sign torn down and set on fire outside of their church Mm. um so um they were targeted la- late last year, uh, late 2020. So Aspera United Methodist Church is an incredible place. It has incredible history. Um, their church building is in the same location it has been in since the 19th century. Um, and so it, it is an incredible local tie, not just to the Pearl incident, but really to the incredible legacy of Black history uh, in Washington, D.C. So we'll put a link to their church um, kind of website as well. Um, but I think there could be more, honestly. Like there could be a lot more in DC to commemorate this. Um, one small marker and a, a a street name, yeah, doesn't always provide the context needed. So I hope that um, as we've had, we have had a lot more local press coverage on this. I think it's becoming something that we're talking about more every year. Um, but I, I think that it could it could be broader, and I think that it should be part of of our education of understanding what Washington, D.C. was like in the 1840s, understanding what the country was like as we were building up to the Civil War, and ultimately how many of the people involved in this attempted escape become key members of the abolitionist movement, and they come to really help shape the country uh, during and after the Civil War.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's so much a part of this era that's like a black hole in American history anyway. Like we don't really talk about, you know, there's some revolutionary stuff and then the civil war happens and that's the sort of gap that we get. And I feel like this is a good way to talk about, that particular moment in era in american history that doesn't really get talked about because there's so many interesting names the beechers henry clay uh horse man like there's just so many um the edmondson sisters and their father and brother like there's just a lot going on there um and that's the pearl incident (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, if you want to learn more, I really encourage you to take our Southwest waterfront tour. Uh, we have an, a, a really great neighborhood tour that uh, takes you through the wharf area, really kind of peeling back to the 1800s in particular. Um, there's not a lot of the original structures left in that neighborhood, but we share those and uh, really kind of understanding a little bit more about what it was like Um in that time and in that era and then we actually take you right to that spot where the pearl was and share that story. Um, So if this interests you I think our Southwest Waterfront tour would interest you as well we'll be doing that along with other local neighborhood tours every Saturday this summer. You can also request it as a private tour as well. Um, And we'll have it on the calendar so you can check all of that out at tcbyfoot.com. Um, But I think it's important to remember um, all of those um, that that fought so hard and and struggled so hard against this institution uh, for whom, uh, you know, getting to the Emancipation Proclamation is great, but, uh, you know, it represents there's so much struggle along the way that we tend to forget
0: about. Yes, I agree. This was so great. I could listen to you talk about the Pearl incident for ages, Becca. Thank you. Um, There's so many. And honestly, I mean, we
1: chose a handful of people to talk about the Edmondson sisters, Ellen Stewart, but I mean, we have pretty good records about those 77 and each one of them is truly deserving of of a podcast episode.
0: What do we have? What do we have next? What's coming up next, Rebecca? Um, Next one is going to be a scandal. But sometimes there are scandals where there's like Daniel Sickles and it's funny. And sometimes there are scandals when it's like not. Uh, This scandal has two and a half bad guys and a victim, uh, but is very important. And I think kind of really interesting. And there's a lot of um, sort of resonance that's going to be important. So we're going to jump back into one of our favorite eras, the Gilded Age. Yeah, we are. We're going to do it big time. Uh, We're going to name drop and we're going to building drop too. We're going to talk about some very famous buildings. It's going to be exciting. Um, So that's coming up next.
1: (laughs) We're wrapping up um, towards the end of the episode. I just want to shout out and thank a tour of her own who highlighted a tour guide Tell All in their latest virtual salon. They had a salon this past week uh, for the Lady Pod Squad, just highlighting female podcasters. Um, for those who listen, we have a team of four who make this podcast happen, and we're really proud that three of the four um, people involved in this podcast are women. Um, we think women's history is American history, and it's important, but we really love our friends at A Tour of Our Own for uh, letting us be a part of that panel, letting us share Tour Guide Tell All. And I just want to shout out some other great podcasts that are doing great work in women's history because um, we are hitting a summer break. There's not as many of our episodes. If you've got some extra time, we encourage you to check out Hashtag History, Remedial Herstory, The Explorers, Civics and Coffee, 52% Productions, which I am just obsessed with right now. Um, I don't even want to spoil it, but they are doing incredible work. If you found anything we talked about uh, about the Pearl Incident interesting, go to 52% Productions right away, uh, Women Who Sarcast, and Whining About history. So A couple podcasts we love. I just want to put that out there this summer. If you're looking uh, to fill your podcast listening schedule, uh, they are all terrific and they're all uh, sharing history in really fun and engaging ways. So um, as much as we hope that you love us the most, we always want to shout out um, other people we know are doing great work. Uh, Of course, if you like us, make sure you're uh, following us on social media. Engage with us on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell and on Facebook and Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. Don't forget to pitch the pod. We're actually going to do a podcast um, next July. That was a pitch. So, you know, we love listening to you guys, getting your feedback. You could have your idea on the podcast. So don't be afraid to send us your thoughts. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Enjoy the summer. Stay cool. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you on a tour. All right, bye. Bye.